As we continue in our studies in the life of Abraham, we've reached chapter 18. And just to quickly refresh your minds, in the previous chapter, it was a while since we looked at it, um, chapter 17, the Lord had appeared to Abraham, or whose name was Abram at the time, and he'd given him and Sarah these new names, Abraham and Sarah. And he'd once more expounded his promises to Abraham that he would have a child, and he'd given, for the first time, a time frame that Abraham and Sarah would have this child within a year. And then he also gave them a name for the child. The child was to be called Isaac, which means laughter. And it was to be this child, Isaac, who inherited all the promises that had been made, that many great nations would come from him. It wasn't to be Ishmael, Abraham's other child. It was to be Isaac. And then Abraham was instructed to go out and to circumcise all the males in his household. And Abraham went out and obeyed. And so we come to chapter 18. And it appears this was not very long afterwards. Um, Isaac hadn't been born. Indeed, Sarah wasn't pregnant. So we can surmise that this was a very short period of time later. Previously, when the Lord had come to Abraham, Abraham had absolutely no doubt that he was speaking or in the presence of the sovereign Lord. We see in the beginning of chapter 17, as the Lord appeared to him, um, verse 3 tells us, Abraham fell on his face. He did the only thing he could when he was confronted with the sovereign Lord, uh, the one who is full of glory and splendor. But at the beginning of chapter 18, Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he actually, in the first verse, he gives us as readers some insight that Abraham didn't have, that it was the Lord who appeared to him by the terebinth trees or the oak trees of Mamre, which is where he seemed to reside, sitting in the tent door by the heat of the day. For 99-year-old Abraham, who was in this situation, resting in his camp amidst the extreme heat, he didn't know that one of those three men who came to see him was the Lord Jesus Christ, standing before him in human form. That's something that only we as readers of this story know from the very beginning. The exact same God who had appeared to him in chapter 17, chapter 15, and chapter 13 was stood before Abraham in a different way. The fancy word for this, the theological term is, it was a theophany, Christ appearing in the body before he came um, almost 2,000 years later. And the blessings that Abraham and Sarah were to receive from this visitor all started and all began with a simple act of hospitality And I'd like to look at this as our first point together this evening. Abraham's hospitality. Now for a 99-year-old man, resting during the heat of the day in a region where temperatures are typically around 40 degrees Celsius or 100 degrees Fahrenheit in old money, and just to give you some guidance of how hot that is, it's about 15 degrees hotter than I think than it's been today, so very hot. You can imagine how unusual it would have been for people to be walking on the roads in the heat of the day rather than seeking shelter as Abraham was here. Yet as verse 2 tells us, on this typical afternoon, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing by him. Um, That's a Hebrew idiom, actually. It means coming towards him with purpose. It doesn't mean literally standing by him. And I'm only going to speak here from personal experience. But when a man, as a man, a third of Abraham's age... My Sunday afternoon nap is interrupted by anyone. I don't rush up. 
and I find it hard to rush up and greet them. It's a challenge of Christian grace, isn't it? But let's see what Abraham did here. Abraham, who was old in body, as his wife charmingly described him, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. He went out to greet them, as was the custom of the time. He didn't pretend not to see them. He joyfully went out and invited them into his tent to be refreshed, to be washed, and to enjoy some food. As verse 3 to 5 says, he said, My Lord, if I have now found favour in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be bought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servants. And they said, Do as you have said. From how Abraham acts and how he goes into his household and mobilizes Sarah, his wife, and his servants to offer these three men hospitality, we do get the impression that this was not the first time that he had offered hospitality to anybody. It seems it was a rather common occurrence. But there's a sense of urgency and generosity conveyed by the text as Abraham went above and beyond what would have been expected of him. The custom of the days for such Bedouin people was to be hospitable. But Abraham went far above what he had to do. And it seems that although he didn't know who these three men were, he understood his spiritual senses had been raised to understand that there was something special about these three men. And he acted in accordance with his intuition. Just look at the words used to describe his urgency in hosting these strangers. If we look in verse 2, we read, he ran. In verse 6, it says he hurried. He then told Sarah, be quick. In verse 7, he ran again. And then he hastened at the end of verse 7. This is a 99-year-old man. He was desperate to look after these strangers. And look at his generosity towards these unknown people. I think this is actually perhaps slightly underlost in the understatement of Abraham's words, a morsel of bread, uh, we might assume that was a very little. But as far as I can understand, three measures of bread, or three measures of flour, um, equate to four kilos a measure. So if you bear in mind that the average loaf in this country is about 600 grams, it's eight times more, eight loaves, for each person. He gave them the best of the flour, the fine flour, a young calf, good and tender, Um, butter and milk to refresh these strangers. Abraham's hospitality, it was lavish and it was generous. Then, perhaps even more surprisingly, this mighty man who had many servants assumed the role of servant in order to provide for his guests. If you look at the second half of verse 8, it says, he stood by them under the tree as they ate. He made sure, personally, that every one of their needs was satisfied. Abraham was generous with his time and with his resources, and he had an urgency to go out of his way to be hospitable and to help others. And this should be the case for all of believers. This was not just a case of cultural hospitality that's demanded. There's an awful lot said, actually, in the Bible about giving hospitality. It's an obligation for God's children to be hospitable. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 9, the apostle urged the early church to serve for the glory of God and to be hospitable to one another 
without grumbling. And hospitality is not just merely inviting around those who we're close to, those who we find really easy to host and enjoy spending time with. Maybe, whether or not we like to admit it, we invite them around so we get a return invitation back to their place. That's what the world does. This isn't Christian hospitality. Hospitality, in the gospel sense of the word, is the wider act of serving those who Christ brings into our lives. If we think of the parable told in Luke 14 of the Great Supper, all those invited guests who made their excuses and said why they couldn't come, we read this in Luke 14, verse 23. Then the master said to them, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. The hospitality that Christ spoke about there was thrown wide open to everyone, those people who we naturally might not invite, those invisible people who the world doesn't see. And in practical terms for us, it's not actually easy to do this, is it? Being honest, it often seems that such opportunities that we have to be hospitable come at the most inopportune times in the middle of the afternoon when it's very hot, when we're tired, when we don't feel great. There's a sacrifice of time and resources required, but we are to do it because God commands us to do it. And because by our works we reflect some of God's character to others. It's the sign of a mature believer to offer hospitality. If we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, speaking of the qualifications of elders, there's the things that you might expect to find, like to be able to teach, to be blameless. But Timothy says this, he says a bishop or an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behaviour, hospitable, and able to teach. And there are also precious promises that are attached to hospitality. In Hebrews 13, which I'm sure we're very slowly working our way towards with Dad, in verse 2, the author of this epistle wrote this concerning hospitality and actually thinking about this very story that we are looking at together. He said, Do not forget to entertain angels. Uh, forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Abraham's willingness to be hospitable, as the Lord would want him to be, opened the way to great blessing for him. And for us too, there will be times of great blessing when we ourselves are blessed by those who come before us. Now, of course, Abraham was a very rich man. We know that he would have been seen almost as a king figure in that region. He had many people to help him prepare this banquet. But for us, hospitality doesn't have to be a four-cost meal. You don't have to go out to the supermarket and buy eight loaves of bread. Hospitality, in practical terms, can be something as little as taking time to have a cup of tea and a biscuit with somebody. It was as I was preparing this point, I was reminded of something I once heard about our ideas of hospitality today. And the person was saying that too often, as Christians, we're happy to delegate it, this responsibility to the church. There are church lunches, church teas, breakfasts. And I'm not knocking these things because they are fine and they are good. But these things 
are not to be at the expense of this personal hospitality that we see here with Abraham, this act of bringing others into your lives, into your household. The promise that we read in Hebrews 13 verse 2 is a personal promise. It's not a corporate one. And we're to do it because I've heard, and I'm sure quite a lot of you have too, have read maybe testimonies of people who were so influenced by believers' hospitalities, by their generosity and concern for their welfare, heat of the day, come in, shelter beneath the tree, wash my feet. It was a signpost, people's hospitality, that pointed them towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham's humility, as he waited on his guests, is also a signpost that points us towards the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ as he bathed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. The eternal Son of God, he didn't count it beneath him to stoop down and to do the loneliest tasks as he washed his disciples' feet, took the grime and the dirt from the road off them. He was not proud. He didn't consider it beneath him to serve them. And he didn't delegate it to someone else, did he? He humbly showed his love and service for his disciples. And I'd just like to read to you the last three verses of this section of John chapter 13, verse 14 to 17, as he gave his words of instruction to his disciples. He said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. By reflecting the activity of God, Abraham was pointing towards God as the supreme host. And this is the pure and the eternal God who offers through the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross the chance to reunite sinful wretches such as ourselves into this table fellowship with Christ. Matthew 8 verse 11 says, I say to you that many will come from the south, the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Our hospitality is a picture of the eternal provision and grace that God offers all those who trust in him for forgiveness of sins. And just as time moves on, so do the events of this chapter. And in verse 9, we see that these three men speak again. They say to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he replied, here in the tent. These three men called Sarah by her new name, the name that the Lord had given her in the previous chapter. And for Abraham, there must have been a lot of suspicion now about who the true identity of these men were. I'm sure not many people would have known it, and it would have been very impolite to have asked for someone's wife by name as a complete stranger, even if you did know the name. And from verse 10 onwards, there's only one of these three men who speaks and confirms to Abraham the fact that we know as readers that this was the Lord God in human form. And there's a repeat of the promises that are found in chapter 17. He said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall be with child. And we're told Sarah was listening at the door. It's in these verses that we see why these three men came along. 
It wasn't a random visit this. It wasn't testing Abraham to see if he would be hospitable. The Lord had an underlying purpose behind this visit. And it was a visit that led to a rebuke for both Abraham and Sarah. The actual reason the Lord had come was to bring Sarah into his promise and to let her know that there would be personal involvement for her in his plan. Sarah wasn't just to be a body to carry the baby. She was actively involved and very much a part of the plan as Abraham was. And the message we have here is very important. And it's one we must remember and proclaim to our society today. A society that despises authority and disparages the moral constraints of the past. For so many so-called progressive thinkers, the Bible is the ultimate symbol of the white patriarchal society that they absolutely despise and doing their best to get rid of. And these postmodernists, they often have very narrow-minded ideas. They have uneducated roles, ideas of what women's roles were in the past and in the Bible. And they often will tell you that in the Bible, women were second-class citizens subdued by men. And I'm not here to defend how society has treated women in the past, um, and neither do I want to. But what I can do, and we can all do, with absolute conviction, is show how this view of the women in the Bible is completely and absolutely wrong. Eve was created as an equal to Adam in Genesis 2. And throughout redemptive history, women have played very important roles. There's been Rahab, the first Gentile convert, Esther, the lady who saved the Jews from extinction, Sarah, in this case, who was used by God to be the mother of many nations. They're held up as a pattern of faith. The Christian belief, the Christian faith, rather, it stands alone above all other faiths with its recognition and treatment of women as equal to men. But the thing I think that really irritates people the most, the postmodern activists, is the Bible's teaching on gender and the roles of gender. As Christians, we believe men and weak women were made equal in God's sight and before each other. One is not above the other. But the Bible teaches us quite clearly that they have different roles to fulfill in life. And one of the roles that the man has is to be head of his household. That was a, as a consequence of the fall, as Genesis 3 makes clear. And it's not an easy task either. Men have the responsibility for the well-being and the happiness of their family and of their wives and of their spiritual growth. So let's return to the passage and have a look and see what the problem was here. In verse 10, why do we read that Sarah was listening in at the tent door, uh, eavesdropping? It's surely not the sort of behaviour that you would expect to find in a healthy and happy relationship. And furthermore, her reaction in verse 12, as she heard the promise through the door, she laughed within herself. It's very telling, isn't it? It was a laughter of unbelief. This reactive laughter, one of doubt and scepticism and surprise, it almost seems, doesn't it, like this was the very first time that she had heard this promise. Had Abraham not told the person in his life to whom he should have been closest to, to whom he should have shared everything, what the Lord had told him in the previous chapter. We don't learn anything new about the promise in chapter 18. It's the same things that we've learned in 17. 
And yet it seems that Sarah was almost outside knowing what the Lord had planned for us. Abraham was being gently rebuked by the Lord here. He had to step up to the mark. He had to lead his household in the part God's pathways. By excluding Sarah from God's plan, the Lord had to come and visit him and say, Abraham, you're in this with Sarah together. You need to step up. You're part of a team. Their home life had to be sorted out and had to be made straight before the Lord's work could happen amongst them. Abraham had failed to include the other person who the Lord had plans for. And see how gentle the Lord was, though, in his rebuke. In verse 9, he says to him, Abraham, where's your wife? In verse 10, again, I think there's a prompting. Abraham, where's your wife? Sarah, your wife's going to have a son. Abraham, why did Sarah, your wife, laugh? The Lord took his friend Abraham aside, and with sensitivity, he gently rebuked him. Abraham had failed in what he should have done, but this didn't ruin God's relationship with him. The Lord came personally, and he sat down at the table with him, and he brought Sarah in, and then later on in the chapter, he told Abraham of his plans for Sodom and Lot there. And there's a graciousness and gentleness of love that we see in God's relationship with his friend Abraham here. Something that all of God's people at some point in their lives will experience. How often can we think of the times where we've sinned, we've let down the Lord, and that might have been by letting down those who are closest to us. We failed to do what our duty is, and we've damaged our relationships and others as a result. And yet the Lord doesn't cut us loose, does he? It's amazing to think how tenderly he dealt with Abraham and how he was so happy to call him his friend despite this. And the Lord, he's gracious. He reveals the plan he has for his people, to all his people. It's not just hidden, it's for there for all people. He tells us what our future will bring. And as we move on to our final point and Sarah's reaction, let's see the plan that he had for Sarah. And it's found in verse 12. As we look and see, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Sarah's reaction was very similar to Abraham's from the chapter before. She laughed. But there's a difference in the laughter. As I'm sure you probably know, Sarah's laughter was filled with unbelief, whereas Abraham's was in astonishment and belief. Perhaps she was slightly incredulous, she was flustered by what she was hearing, but whatever the case was, she doubted what the Lord had in store for her. And her reasoning was sound enough. In verse 11, Moses, the author, reminds us that Abraham and Sarah were old, that Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. She'd stopped menstruating, she had gone through the menopause. As a woman of 90 years old, her body was incapable of conceiving and nursing a child. And it seems that Abraham was now too old to have a child, too old to be fertile as well, as Sarah points out. And so Sarah laughs within herself. And significantly, as we think about this, all their lives, Sarah and Abraham had desired to have a child. This is what they most wanted They'd spent 25 years since the Lord had first appeared to them, living in faith, 
trusting that God would honour his promises. And yet as the Lord came and visited them in person, they found it so hard to believe that he would fulfil his promise when this moment they'd waited for for so long came along. This moment that should have given them great pleasure, the fulfilment of motherhood, of raising a child, they, they found it so hard to believe. 25 years earlier, they might have thought, well, it was possible by some unique fluke. 13 years beforehand, Ishmael had been born. Perhaps they even had secret hopes that they'd have a child then. But now, as Sarah thought upon it, 25 years later, she thought it was an impossibility. The only way this child could come about was by an act of divine um, work of the Lord, the one who spoke all things into existence. Abraham and Sarah were still relying upon themselves and that reliance had to be completely extinguished. That's why we had the wait. They had to have an utter dependency and an utter trust on the Lord to do what he said he would. And so when he said in verse 10, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, it was beyond doubt that this pregnancy would be a supernatural event. They were to conceive in the normal manner, there was no surrogates, nothing different about it. The Lord would make her cycles work and he would make this humanly impossible act possible. And as I read one of the commentaries, one of the commentators said this, and I thought it was a fantastic point. He said, isn't it strangely characteristic of us to believe in God's promises for a long, long time, to endure much discouragement along the way until the promise is almost there? And then we find that we end up doubting. And despite the laughter being within herself, the Lord knew. And he said to Abraham, as head of the household, responsible for his wife's um, spiritual well-being, he said, why did Sarah laugh? It's a sobering thought, isn't it, to be reminded that the Lord knows everything. Nothing can be hidden from him. Even those who are closest to us can have secrets that we never know about, but the Lord knows the heart. As Jeremiah 17, 9-11 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. If we pretend otherwise, then we're only deceiving ourselves and trying to deceive God. And this is what Sarah tried to do when the Lord confronted her about her laughter. In verse 15, she lied. She said, I did not laugh. But he said to her, no, you did laugh. And Sarah's problem here was that her view of God was entirely wrong. Now, although there's a holy and a reverential fear that all of God's children must have of one who is so holy and pure... It's also a truism that God's children should never fear him as one might fear a cruel father, for example. The Lord is not harsh. He doesn't delight in retribution. In fact, in Psalm 103, verse 14, it says, He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, that we are weak, that we are fallen. He knows that. And Sarah's weak faith here had led to her misjudging God. She misjudged his character. She misjudged the depths of his mercy and forgiveness. 
and see how tenderly the Lord rebuked her and dealt with her weak faith. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And told her, at the appointed time I shall return and you shall have a son. There was no taking away of the promise that these two people had yearned for. God forced Sarah to confront her actions. He didn't punish her by taking away the promise. His grace was enough to do not only what he said he would do, but to accept that Sarah was human, she had her limitations, and that he could forgive her unbelief. If I read some words from 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 to 19, as we think of this love of God, it says this, Love has been perfected among us in this, that while we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world, there is no fear in love, But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And this love comes through Christ. And so what an encouragement we have as we look at Sarah. What an encouragement there is for those of us who do struggle to believe God's promises. We don't have to pretend before him. We don't have to have this stiff upper lip and this facade of, yeah, everything's all right, everything's fine, we're triumphing. In fact, actually, what we see from Sarah is that God won't let us put on this facade. Rather, he will draw close to us and he will be near to us and so that our relationship in him might be increased and it might be a relationship of truth. We can deceive others and often we do give people these words and impressions that everything's fine, but nothing's hidden from God. And he's so gracious and he's so tender in the way which he deals with his children. He desires to hear our inner struggles so that we might actually grow in faith and knowledge of him. And Abraham and Sarah were to be reminded of this every time they thought and called their son Isaac, whose name means laughter. They'd both laughed, hadn't they, when they heard God's plan, his almost unbelievable, staggering promise. And I'd like to close with this thought. It's God's will, actually, that we should also laugh and be astonished at his grace. Not with the laughter of unbelief like Sarah, but with the laughter of joy, the laughter of speechlessness at his goodness towards us, towards sinful people such as ourselves who so often let him down. And if Christ is our saviour and our friend, then we don't need to fear his presence. Sarah feared, she denied, she lied before him. But we have no need to to fear one who loves us. We don't need to be like that lazy servant in Matthew 25 who buried his talents. But rather we should enjoy spending time with him. We should do it openly and in public. We should delight in his grace and in his presence and in his forgiveness of sins. So may God help us to have a clearer vision of who he is, to have honest accounts with him, and to be those who do as he wishes, to be hospitable and to live lives that reflect his glory.